I finally gotten used to Ryan's taste and I just come to expect stuff of weird dreams. <laughs> That's the best way to describe everything Ryan makes me read for this podcast. Hey, you're listening to Quarantined Comics, where every week we review or re-review a graphic novel or comic book collection that made a big impression on us in the past. And if you've got something that you love and want us to read or that you hate and want us to read, reach out to us at qtdcomics at gmail.com. As we're recording this episode, the days are beautiful and society continues its systemic implosion. So appropriately in this episode, we're going to review Beautiful Darkness, written by the French writer Fabian Vellman, and illustrated in gorgeous, sumptuous watercolors by the two-person team, Kara Squet. Now, if you ever wanted to read the nightmare version of a children's book, Beautiful Darkness is it. It's about a bunch of little magical people much like the borrowers who live in the body of a little girl. And when that girl is murdered in the woods and her body starts to decay, those little people are forced to flee and try to rebuild their society using the surrounding resources. It does not go so well. So I'm Ryan Joe. And I'm Roman Segel. Congratulations on surviving 2020 so far. And reviewing Beautiful Darkness with us today is my friend Alex Palmer, author of The Santa Claus Man, Weirdopedia, and Happiness Hacks. And this October, his next book, The Atlas of Christmas, is coming out. Alex, welcome. Hey, what's going on, guys? So the reason I wanted to have you on the show reviewing this particular graphic novel is that despite your delightful bibliography, whenever there's a fucked up movie that's being released, you and I (laughs) will watch it. But you're not a comic book person. So what's what's your background with the medium? Yeah. So if it sounds like a crazy, scary movie, Ryan and I are just like, let's go check it out. My background is pretty limited. I mean, I grew up reading like Marvel comics and that sort of thing. But as far as graphic novels, it's pretty limited. I've, I'm trying to think like like Charles Burns. Was that Black Hole? Three or four of them. Yeah. In that which I also this one kind of reminded me of that sort of vibe. And the, you know, Jimmy Corrigan, smartest kid in the world and and like Watchmen. I'd say like that's about the extent of my like graphic novel reading. So I'm coming in pretty limited, but I definitely love a good story, especially one that's like really dark and weird, which this one uh, I, I would say. Uh, yeah, I think I finally gotten used to Ryan's taste. He got me to read Black Hole years ago <laughs> when we met him. And I just come to expect stuff of weird dreams. <laughs> that's the best way to describe everything yeah. Ryan makes me read for this podcast. Yeah, it's disturbing because it's psychologically really, really dark. I mean, there's gore, and I was really into that growing up. I read Spawn, for instance. But this stuff really, really sticks with you in a way that some of the, some of the comic books that are you know really, really showy about their violence don't. You kind of just gloss over those. This one, I read it for the first time when it was printed in English in 2015, and I, I still think about it. It's still kind of... Well, it haunts my dreams. Yeah, there's really distinctive images in it. And they aren't necessarily like gory images, though there are, like you said, a few of those. But it's more, I, I guess part of it is the juxtaposition of the, and we can talk about that probably, the, the sort of the almost like you, you mentioned, the sort of fairy tale children's story aspect. But then they kind of pull the rug out from under you. I mean, pretty, pretty quick. They, you know what you're in for before they even show the title card in the, in the, in the book. But well, what's, what's interesting is like, 
I got the book and I knew there was going to be a weird factor to it. But, you know, you you order the book. It shows up in the mail. Pretty little cartoon character on grass. I didn't flip through it. It literally sat on my shelf for a few weeks. <laughs> and, you know, a few nights ago, got into the first few pages and then they reveal where these creatures had been living, you know, and I went back to the cover and I saw the hand and I'm like, oh, <laughs> thanks, Ryan. It's going to be one of those books. It's a book that surprises you because when it when it first opens, I mean, everyone is a very it, it's it's a very cartoony look for these little people. They have big eyes. They look like cartoon characters, and then the way they interact with each other is very much like cartoon characters. It has the innocence of of childhood. You know, it, it opens with a prince courting the main character Aurora, and she has her little servant, and everyone is just very very frivolous. They're serving tea, and then everything starts to cave in. Their world starts to cave in literally on them, and then they flee. And when they flee, there's this big splash page where they are is in the body of a girl that girl is dead in the grass and she's very clearly dead she's not asleep and that's pretty much the first splash page you see before the title uh, a, a big watercolor image of, of, a, of a dead child of a dead child i think the, the the contrast like and it also shifts to a very more realistic illustration which is really jarring when you've had these kind of cartoonish characters up to that point yeah and you know it's not just they're drawn like fairy tale cartoon characters, but I think they act like fairy tale cartoon characters all the way through, mm. just in a very real world setting. Because the emotions are pretty raw, the jealousy is high. It, I have a toddler; she's four now, and these characters behave like crazy little people. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, because kids are raw emotion, right? They don't have the controls in place that you learn over time, and that's kind of what all these characters have. So these characters, it's Lord of the Flies-esque, you know? It's just like, yeah. you know, if no limits on these characters, act how you want in a very real situation. That's actually what freaked me out the most when I read this, is these characters are very, very childlike, very, very instinctive, very curious. And what was so striking to me as the book progressed is how evil sneaks up on these characters. They're very innocent, and initially they do things that are harmful, like they pull the the legs off of a bug, which is something that a child would do. And yeah. you don't know at the time, is it innocent? They just don't know better? Or are they being malicious? There's this ambiguity. And then later on, as there are no checks to their behavior, um, they behave basically worse and worse, more instinctive and more instinctive as the book progresses. And to me, it's basically how maybe they don't start out as evil. Actually, this is what I wasn't sure. Whether they always had this kind of evil within them and then their circumstances brought it out or whether it was something that they just kind of had to adapt as, you know, as there were no checks in place. I guess this is a, a very long-winded way of saying there was sort of a nature-nurture debate. Again, everything, the, the prequel to this book living happily ever after in the body of the girl, <laughs> whatever that is. But like, they are happy, innocent. They literally have n no reality to contend with. And then once they enter the real world, outside of the girl, shit hits the fan. Reality sets in. And that's mm. where it's just a very realistic Lord of the Flies depiction. Some people uh, cling to better instincts. Some don't. But even in the end, I mean, to kind of ruin the ending, the hero, you know, becomes a badass as well. Yeah. Well, and oh, she, 
Yeah. I, I wonder too, you see the, also the social influence, like Ryan, you were saying, you know, the pulling the legs off the bugs. It's kind of like just going from their gut. It seems much more childlike. That's sort of, you know, malicious kid, but it still seems like a kid. But the real darkness seems to set in when you've got the, I can't remember what sort of the, the princess, you know, the, the sort of the Z- villain. Zelly? Zelly. Zelly. That's right. Yeah. So when she really starts kind of guiding things a bit more and they sort of want to please her, that's where it really seems to shift from troublemaking to evil. Malice, where it becomes premeditated. Yeah. Yeah. There's that, there's actually that interesting, there's this quote, I, I'm misquoting it, but it's basically there's nine meals between mankind and anarchy. I think a writer named Alfred Henry Lewis said that if you miss nine meals, uh, that's when society just descends into an utter shit show. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing this in play with beautiful darkness. It's not just the, the moral decay of each individual person. It's this incredible societal decay. And what is so sad about it is Aurora, the princess, she actually does her best to prop up her world, to prop up her community, to adopt to the surroundings. Yeah, and bir- for a while, birthday parties, uh, yeah. making peace with the insects, etc. She seems successful for a while, or at least it seems to be going okay for a while, and then it just completely and suddenly falls apart. And when it falls apart, it leads to her moral degradation as well. But also it's kind of survival for her. There's a couple moments where she really crosses a line, but it you can, you understand the shift that she makes where some of the other characters, like they seem to all be on sort of different paths where, I, I don't know, a character like Plim it was kind of creepy from the first frame. You're like, what's this person all about? Like, what's their stake in this? And you never really, you, you never get the sense that they're in it for anybody but themselves, where Aurora does seem like there is a little bit more of a, you know, caring for the community a bit. I, I, but I think Aurora was more than any other character. She was trying to make do in the new world. She was trying to adapt. There's only one character I think who was trying to adapt more than her with the, the skinny princess who escapes right but oh jane yeah but and i want to come back to her in a second but i feel like the evil princess was trying to cling to the old ways marrying the prince even when she tries to invade the sanctuary that they find she's clinging to the old kind of hierarchy of okay we're gonna set up camp you know she's like aurora was the only one yeah well you said it, not me. Oh, I know she is, though. When you think of, I mean, even yeah, the way she's yeah. drawn, this kind of big bodied character really tries to force uh, reality to conform to her right. own instincts me. and desires. And she's always, she's very me, me, me. And, and she has this cult of people who are well, helping her pop up. It's exacerbated in her, I don't know if it's her honeymoon to the prince. First, you know, she totally steals Aurora's man, mm-hmm. but the honeymoon. Where, you know, she loses something in the water and she's like, you have to go get it. Husband. Right. <laughs> no matter what the cost, you have to uphold my worldview. I like that contrast, Roman, between Aurora and Zelly. And I feel like there's almost like a triptych with those two. And then that, I don't think they ever really name her. The one is the one who like ends up like crawling back inside the oh, body. Yeah, the yeah. sort of like where she almost seems like she's accepting the worst version of things. She's comfortable eating maggots and climbing back into the body and putting up with when in the Rome. worst right exactly whereas aurora seems like she's adapting but in a i don't know a little healthier uh, way if you can call it that i wanted to talk a little bit about aurora and what she does in the beginning because it's not just her 
initial selflessness in terms of trying to manage this whole community. On the first episode of this show, when we reviewed Kingdom Come, I was complaining about Superman's management style because I felt he was an <laughs> ineffective manager. And Aurora is also, in a way, because the whole community falls out of her control, so you can't really say she's successful. But what she does do that I think is smart is she tries to adapt her community to the surroundings, to use the resources that are given to her by this new world and apply them so that she can create a society. And she also creates these relationships with the surrounding animals, namely like the mouse, but she tries to create relationships with all of these other wild animals as well. Kind of like Cinderella in a way, you kind of think of Cinderella and all the mice and mm. birds helping her. Now that goes to shit because they're wild animals. Um, well, no, um, I, I, the animals, one, I'm so glad they didn't talk or have a mode of communication, but there's like, did they have like their own civilization? Because I feel like she was in a cave with one negotiating something. Yeah. Yeah. He's sort of wearing clothes. Yeah. But was that I, like she put those on him or was that, yeah. Like, she, I feel like she was in his territory though. Mm -hmm. So. She was, yeah, it, 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 I felt that the mouse put on the clothes to impress her and to try to help her, you know, so so it's like the mouse actually shows a little bit more, uh, the anthropomorphism anthropomorphize the mouse more than the other animals, which are strictly wild animals. So the mouse is actually the closest we get to like the talking animal helper trope that's so common in, in fairy tales, which honestly makes what happens to the mouse later on really, really devastating. And <laughs> right. So I just, I just flipped to the mouse page and flipped one page after it and found, I, I, I we probably should have a section where we talk about most disturbing scene where one of the <laughs> kids goes list. up and, yeah, I know, tries to get food from the baby chicks oh. <laughs> with like the, the mother bird feeding it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dude, Ryan, you, you give me the stuff of nightmares. So what happens in that scene, the, the little ballerina character goes up and tries to become like a little chick that's getting fed by to the get mom. Food, get food. The yeah. mom sticks her beak down her throat and basically impales the, the little ballerina girl. But to me, that's very emblematic of what this book is, which is you have these cartoon characters with these innocent little ideas trying these cutesy little yeah. things. And here's what would really happen. Here's what would happen. Yeah. And that, that's what makes it more disturbing. It's actually not the gore. It's the innocence contrasted with reality. I keep coming back to these guys are behaving like kids. And yeah. Kids don't know any better. They're going to do dumb shit like that. <laughs> yeah, I love the contrast between the, the actual animals that have this sort of emptiness in their eyes that aren't necessarily good or bad. Like there's something sort of creepy and menacing about them, but they're certainly not like malicious or anything. It's nature. It's just nature. They're just she doing their that, thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like the party that Aurora tries to host with all of the animal friends, there's a panel where they're all seated together and it actually looks almost like a Disney movie. The animals are, of course, drawn very realistically. And then the animals just go for all the food because they're animals. You know, that's what they're going to that's what they're going to do. And the party just goes completely to shit. I wonder about that character, Jane. What What's her role? She's somebody that's been there for a while. Has she figured out the rules of this? you know, how to sort of make it work for her. What's her story? Because she almost seems like at first, like a bit of a fairy godmother or a, I don't know, I don't, someone that's there to help out. You, you were talking about the maggot girl earlier who started eating maggots and living in the, the decaying corpse of the girl. <laughs> and I'm going to tie this back to Jane, but every character is almost emblematic of a certain personality that might emerge during the apocalypse. Whereas you have, you have Zeely who's out for herself. You have the maggot person who's just insistent on living in the ruins of her home and not going anywhere. You've got Aurora who's trying to manage everything. And then you've got Jane 
And Jane's sort of like the survivalist, and she's going to go off. She's kind of the lone well, the wolf. Sword. Independent. She's a, yeah, lone independent, lone independent, independent woman who's just going to find her own way to survive. And she's not going to actively help you, but she's not going to hinder you. And she's going to carve her own way and make it work for herself. So she's sort of like another archetype who, who emerges throughout all of this. None of the characters actually have any backstory, mm-hmm. Jane included. But what was striking to me is that both Jane and um, Aurora are probably the most competent people in this entire world. And Jane, is she's going to fend for herself. She figures things out. She figures out how to survive for herself. Aurora tries to lift everybody up, and she tries to help her community survive. But the difference is that Jane is perfectly fine being alone. And Aurora, she kind of has this need to be around other people. She has this need for companionship. When you first meet her, she's trying to yeah. court Hector. And she's even a people at, pleaser. Yeah. She's mm-hmm. and even at the end, right? She, you know, she's she's kind of tied herself to the the giant. Mm-hmm. She calls, yeah, her, her my sweet prince. So she needs companionship. And in a way, that's also her downfall. Yeah, she cares about other people. And I, I wonder, are these supposed to all be different parts of the same person? Are these all the dead girls, various personalities? Is this like, you know, a prototype to Inside Out or something, a much darker version? <laughs> like where it's was... like different moods and, you know, it's all the same so, person though. I was thinking about that. It's like the girl in Inside Out died and all of the little emotions came <laughs> spilling out and it's started to the eat each other. Yeah. <laughs> it was a sequel, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> But Um, there is that sense that, like, they all each is sort of distinct and kind of fits. Like, it would make sense that they're they're sort of supposed to each represent a different, uh, yeah, different attitude, a different approach. I want to ask about the Huntsman to try to understand the universe. Is the giant a serial killer, or is he the guy? Did he kill the girl? Oh, interesting. I I, I I hadn't thought of that. No, I took it as I took it as fact that killed that girl. That like, that's what made that last line where she calls him my sweet prince. That's what made it to me so scary. This is the guy that killed a girl. And it's not explicitly stated, but I mean, first off, by proximity of the narrative, it kind of indicates that, you know, he's the, they're the only two human characters here are the little girl who was murdered. I guess, I mean, she could have had a brain aneurysm, but I don't think that's what they're going for. I, I think the implication is that she was murdered. And the only other human there is this big, quiet man who's isolated in the woods. So I think, you know, the implication is that this guy killed her. And that's certainly how I how I read it. And there's also the shattered doll that appears in his shack. Yeah. Right. Uh, I think that's another further indication of the of the of the creators saying hey, this he, guy is responsible. He shows up at, at one point. So he's clearly right there and would have presumably seen the body of the girl if he was right there and didn't do anything about it. So that also makes it seem more likely that he was responsible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, when, when I read it, I mean, the, the immediate connection for me is this man, this other, only other human character here is the, the killer. Is he a serial killer? Well, we didn't see him kill another girl, but maybe we'll, we'll see that in the sequel. The Aurora character seems to really be he she she's like drawn to him like what's what's that all about it's That's... a it's a scary parallel to the beginning right where she's drawn to hector in the beginning of the of the book she's courting hector hector's her prince i think she actually they actually even use that word to describe him and at the end she kind of finds another new prince and what's so scary about it is a this prince is probably a killer of little girls 
And B, the fact that she's tied herself to this guy and he doesn't even know she exists. I mean, that's what I was talking about, her need for companionship. It's so great that, and, and she's so isolated by the end of the book. It, it fits her evolution. Like at the very beginning, she's got this fairy tale romance with Hector, who right from the start seems a little dubious. And then by the end, when she's gone from innocence to experience, then her new prince is this like least idealized kind of version of of a person you could imagine. She is isolated, but she's also makes that active choice that this is going to be the person that she's relying on now. I mean, it's her character journey. She's she's a survivor. She made hard choices. She finally kills another, right? Or intentionally kills another, right? Mm. She she's made her bed, and. I don't know. It's it's like seeing her wear the the mouse pelt, who was her ally. I don't even show know if they talk about how she got the mouse pelt, but they kind yeah, of do. She 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 comes upon after she Aurora gouges out the mouse's eyes because she's angry <laughs> that's with him. Right, that's and I do right. want to talk about that scene because I think that's a big turning point for that character. The her companions chase the mouse kill it and eat it eat it and she comes upon the remains of her mouse friend and the pelt is there and then she starts wearing the pelt yeah i i want to talk about her decision to gouge out the mouse's eyes because to that point they have been allies and that was incredible that was the point where you 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 know you're with aurora all the way and you feel bad for her and then she in this moment of anger blames the mouse yeah so at this point her party has been ruined. She's seen Hector married to Zeely. So she's really, really distraught and upset. And two of her, I guess, so-called friends bring the mouse and say, hey, we caught the mouse. You know you know what to do. You want revenge. And she blames the mouse for ruining her party, she says. And she, as revenge, she gouges out the mouse's eyes. And, and that is illustrated right in front of us. But it um, seems like such a deliberate choice. Like she, she oh, you, you don't know that she really believes that he was responsible. You just sense that like she's decided that this is where she's going to direct all of her frustration and anger. Well, I, I went back and looked at the, the the panels before, and there's nothing really in the destruction of Aurora's party that would implicate the mouse. He's basically the vessel for her anger and for her blame, and she directs her rage right at her friend. I mean, the mouse is her friend. The mouse is the most anthropomorphized animal in the book. The mouse had also been kind of trading stuff with her, right? It had given her berries. So it's a it's a huge betrayal when she does that to him. And she makes the decision to do that to him. And so that, to me, that's just a, a huge shift in her character where she'd been the heroine, this this figure of, of moral righteousness. And, that's, and, and, and that was really striking to me because normally you don't see that in these sort of books you know the heroine generally makes the right decision and here she makes a really really awful decision that hurts somebody else and i I thought it was interesting that it would be symbolized with then what she wore like she then like took his pelt and wore it where like the first when she first appears in the the story like the first couple frames she's asking how do i look you know what's she's very concerned about appearances in her dress so then this is appropriate that now when she's had this kind of transformation or rebirth that it would be, you know, through what she's wearing as well, that she would actually don his, you know, carcass uh, and, and, you know, wear that. Well, what's interesting is right after she, you know, she interacts with Jane or Jane finds her. And in the kind of subsequent scenes, she's back to being the pretty princess just for like two pages where she's trying to understand Jane's world. I mean, she even is like, well, at least it's warm here. 
and Jane just kind of gives her this look or this non-look, right? Like, I think you need to understand that reality is not what you think it is, lady. I, I, Jane's a lot more canny to the circumstances. She's a lot less naive. It doesn't save her in the end. But when we first see her, she's strapping gear to herself to survive. She tames a bird in order to have a mount. And when she shacks up in the house of the of the giant or the killer of the little girl, it's clear that it's just a temporary thing for her, that she's going to be moving on soon. Versus Aurora, you know, she's looking for a home. She's looking for, for a place to stay, a place where she can kind of rebuild her society. So there's an, there's an idealism and a naivety with Aurora that, that doesn't exist with Jane, who's a lot yeah, much Jane, more of a realist. Yeah, Jane's not only a realist, but she doesn't care about society. She's not looking to create a community. She's just looking to survive and looking out for herself, which it feels like Aurora kind of ends up in that place or closer to that. But that, isn't that ultimately... Jane has, I, maybe I misread it, but Jane gets killed by the evil princess. She gets correct? killed by Zeely, yeah, which happens off scene. She goes out to confront Zeely because Zeely's making too much noise and will give him away. And surprisingly, she's killed by them, which I think points to how insidious and nasty Zeely and her followers are. Though we don't what did you, what did, see it. We only see that her, Zeely shows up with the bird. I don't think there's anything else that says sp specifically that she did kill her, which it did surprise me because I feel like Jane seemed more, you know, clever than Zeely would have been. Well, Zeely's cunning and she's got mm. the numbers. You're right. It, it happened very, very quickly and surprisingly easily for her and off screen. So we don't know, you know, there's a fight scene that happened that we didn't see. Mm -hmm. Well, and that, that's what I, uh, the evil genius of this book. Sure, there are moments where they punch you in the face with something, but it's what they don't say. <laughs> what, is, what happens yeah. off panel, and I, I think these are very intentional choices. They're made to make you wonder, and the more you wonder, the more uncomfortable you are with this. There's these and, deliberate gaps. Yeah, they just leave these sort of openings that you're like, wait, what happened to that person? And you're like, oh, and you kind of fill it in with your own. You have to kind of- Which is scarier, right? <laughs> Which is scarier than what probably happened. And, and I, this is, I mean, broader commentary on pop culture. I don't want the gaps filled in as uh, yeah. it's the J.J. Abrams mystery box, which, you know, frustrates me with why he had to fill in all the gaps in his <laughs> latest movie. Like, I don't want the answers half the time. Like, people get mad at Lost for not answering the questions. That's the point. It's it's scarier if you don't know. And it is. It's both the, the both the broad strokes of like what's actually going on here. Who are all these characters? But also characters that disappear. Or you you just are left wondering what's their fate. And it, it gives you that room to piece it together yourself. The economy with the way these characters are sketched in. There's so many characters in this book. Yet each and every one of them seems to have a very distinct personality, even if they have like a total of five lines throughout the book. Whether it's Plym and his betrayal of Aurora or the Spectacles girl and the way she still has sympathy for Aurora, but is still, you know, just just really kind of tied to, to Zeely. Each, each character in this book has such a distinct personality, even if they don't have much screen time or many lines. And I think that also kind of adds to the impact of what happens to these people as they start as they die as they die suddenly and often horribly or as they just make decisions to do really awful things they're not just faceless personalityless characters like henchmen 
they actually feel like real people who are making these decisions. It is crazy how many characters, and I guess if I if I had one criticism, it would be I feel like if it could have a few less characters to develop them a little more would have probably had a little more impact. There are so many characters that they introduce and it's, it's pretty incredible the way they're able to get through like pretty much everybody has a, an arc, but I wonder if they'd given them more time to, you know, given some a few less characters, given the other ones more time to kind of breathe and develop. I actually, so the reason I liked the, all of the characters is it, it created a sense of community well, it's world building. It's world building. And like mm-hmm. it, it shows you there's a tapestry and a texture and that Fabian, I think his name is Fabian. Yeah. Fabian literally mapped out all of these people and these relationships. And again, even though they're not all shown and they're not explained, it's come back to Star Wars. It's what makes universes, bigger universes better, right? It's like there's relationships between, I guarantee, I guarantee he has a name for almost every character, even if they are unnamed. Mm-hmm. Visually, they're all distinct. They're all of different sizes. They all have different wardrobes. They're, and even though all of the little people are simply drawn, we talked about this earlier, as opposed to the the real the regular sized humans who are realistically drawn, <laughs> they all have like very very sharp distinct features. Like the girl who has the maggots, you know, she has a very particular shape. Also, just as like there's a lot going on that like you're you're not getting every single thing. Time passes too in a way that I feel like there's a lot of gaps that are deliberately there. That it's like big jumps, big seasons jumps. change. I mean, it goes from pretty much summer to winter. So I, I thought that was interesting the way it leaves a lot of that open. You're like, well, what? It's not telling you about every single day. Yeah, that's actually a great observation. It's, it's the way they handle the passage of time. It begins in the height of summer, and then, and then you also see, you use. <laughs> They use the body of the little girl also as a device, uh, her, her, her continued decay, which is, you know, I, I was actually on paper that would seem almost kind of obvious, right? The decay of the little girl as the society of these little people crumbles as well, but it really, really works when you see it visually. And I was trying to figure out why it didn't feel like an obvious metaphor. And I think part of it is that the corpse, even as it decays, it becomes like this major set piece. It becomes a scene that the little characters interact with almost every day. And they mm-hmm. interact with it differently as the body, as, as, as the physical body of the little girl, as the corpse decays into, into I the I can only imagine the Disney park that could be built around this. <laughs> it's begging for it. Oh well, my that's gosh, actually- that is amazing. That I mean, that's what was what, one of the most effective things, though, because you immediately think like Gulliver's Travels when you see this like gigantic yeah. body. And th- there's so many references like that, like, you know, Thumbelina or, or yeah. you know, Stuart Little or all these references that it's making that make it that much more messed up, like when things actually go sideways. One other thing I really appreciate, and I've been reading comic books for years, but I feel, Ryan, with the couple of the books you've made us read, I would not have read this on my own. I would not. Chris Ware, I'd read on my own, so eventually I would have stumbled upon Rusty Brown. But like something I appreciate about the outer parts of the genre that are out of the mainstream is that the it's almost the cinematography of the panels. And it's not every page, but whether it's the escape from the woman's body scene, the the nightmare of the girl still being alive, the frame by frame depiction, it's just really good directing. And you don't Maybe I gloss over it in traditional sci-fi and comic books, but it feels the wordless pages feel significantly more intentional and well thought out. And yeah, I don't know. I just the art direction 
and, and when I said I'm not talking about the art, I'm literally talking about the the choices to frame panel by panel to take me yeah. through who's, whoever's perspective you're reading. It's just really well done in this book. The visual storytelling is great. Well, you know what? It's 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 very it's very clear. I was complaining about this when when with a lot of painted comics is that sometimes yeah. you lose the focus is more on the painting and less on the storytelling. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And here the 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 focus is on both. The paintings themselves are just beautiful to behold. The layout of the pages are beautiful, but they all tell a clear story from you know the way the scenes are laid out to the They're, body positions and body language of the characters. That's also the angles. Yeah. The angles. The angles. Of the shots. Mm. Yeah. You, you, you get like when Zeely cries, you always get the sense that these, these incredible crocodile tears, there's no, there's, there's no ambiguity that she's faking it. And, and I think that's, that's really a credit to the, to Kara Squett, the, the team that illustrated this. Yeah, and the different kinds of characters, like the maggot girl, like just immediately creates such a different creepy feel. And it's there's just the smallest details to the way that character is depicted, but it makes such a difference when you're reading it. It's so much more unsettling. I have one more thing that really bothered me. <laughs> <laughs> the one-eyed girl who's taking care of the baby. Oh, yeah, we haven't talked about Timothy. The way they just dispose of her. They're like, hey, we're going to zip you up, bury you alive, the end. (laughs) Um, Not only that. That wasn't the end. That wasn't quite the end. Once they bury Timothy alive, there's actually a panel. The last panel, uh, Zili says, it's late. Let's go home. And it shows the baby just lying there. And that's it. That's the last you see of the baby. So they they actually clearly abandoned uh, the baby. But the other thing is that when they bury Hector, remember, they, they have that, that bag. Plim says, here, I got it. This is the same bag where they buried Timothy. And Plim says, I emptied it, except for some small scratches inside. It's like new. <laughs> Who Timothy was like, the, the, your heart went out to that character. You were really feeling for her. She was so nervous and didn't want to be part of this group yeah. because she had so much fears about him. And that ended up being uh, so much worse than she could have imagined. And she's also, uh, you know, she was also looking after the little baby. I mean, she was looking after something that something, someone else, which is, which is another, you know, very sympathetic thing about her. And what, another thing that makes her, her death so much, so much more tra- tragic because they basically kill two people when they kill Timothy. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this book was really appropriate to read, given our current situation. And I was just wondering if it made you think differently about where we are today, just in, in general, in the world. Well, you, you started with, we're nine meals away, you know? And yeah, I, this the, the only, the closest thing I could come to this book that I had read before was Lord of the Flies. And it's about societal decay. And we're closer than we think, I guess, is what I'd say. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It really brings home this idea of there's just there's a very thin line between civilization and and chaos. And and not everybody is going to react to chaos exactly the same way. Some people might be really have the the most noble intentions and some might do the you know something to, to kind of help others, but there's a fine line between the two sides. Yeah. For me, it's kind of echoing those thoughts, how easy it is to be corrupted. And just kind of seeing that in Aurora, how how much of a go-getter she was, and then how she was so easily uh, led to, to blame the mouse, instigated into that horrible act of, of violence. 
And from there, she just was ostracized. And so it's not just like society is on this precipice, but how you yourself are on this precipice also. I mean, all it takes is just one really bad decision. And you can tip over no matter what your intentions are. Well, that is a dark thought to to end this podcast on. But appropriate but for the book. Appropriate. Yeah, appropriate for appropriate for the book. But hey, next week I believe we are going to be reviewing something that perhaps doesn't have this sort of this sort of darkness. Or am I, I wrong? No, man. Uh, you I might prove you wrong with this. What's happening next week? Next week we are reading the entire run of Black Science by Rick Remender. I don't know if you've read it. I discovered Rick Remender and guys like Jeff Lemire a few years ago. I would go as far as saying these two authors are kind of the modern inheritors of the Warren Ellis's, the Garth Ennis's, the Mark Millar's. They're putting out a lot of different stuff. This is sci-fi, interdimensional travel, making the wrong choice. It's a, it's like if Lost in Space went even wronger. <laughs> <laughs> and the, these characters, you want to like them, but they keep making the wrong choice. And I, I only read the first few volumes when it came out. I just kind of lost track of the title. And through the kind of books that Ryan puts a gun to my head and makes me read, <laughs> I was like, what would Ryan like? Let, let's get out of the happy-go-lucky stuff that I usually bring up. So I'm really excited. My uh, longtime college sci-fi buddy, uh, Josh from Chicago, is going to be dialing in and, and reading it with us. So yeah, Black Science, strap in, get ready. Let's go jump some dimensions. All right. So after the borrowers go horribly wrong, after Thumbelina goes horribly wrong, Lost in Space will go horribly wrong. <laughs> we'll see you next week for that. And remember, if you've got a comic book or graphic novel recommendation for us, reach out to yeah, us yeah. at qtdcomics at gmail.com. That's Q for quarantined, T for teened, and D for duh. Thanks for listening. <laughs>